Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have Nate Rosenblatt back on the show. He was on a couple of years ago, so it's really great to have Nate back on. So first of all, welcome back to The Loopcast, Nate. Thanks, Chelsea. Happy to be here. Nate and I are going to talk about a recent paper he had that was published with George Washington's program on extremism, and it's how Islamic State foreign fighter recruitment hubs emerged in Tunisia, and Nate has done some really fantastic research on the ground in Tunisia that has culminated in this great paper, so I'm so excited to dive into it today. For those that might not know about Nate's background, he is a doctoral fellow at Newfield College in Oxford, Oxford University, and a non-resident fellow at a New America's International Security Program. He's also an independent consultant looking at development and conflicts in the Middle East and North Africa. So he's got a great background and a very impressive background in the field. So Nate, why don't you sort of give us the bottom line up front of why this paper is important, especially today? Thanks, Chelsea, um, and thank you very much for having me on the Loopcast. Uh, we were talking about this research earlier this year, and I was very excited to come on. And um, been, I've listened to the show for a long time, and I think that was on in 2016, so it's been three years, and I'm happy to be back. So to answer your question, um, uh, let me say maybe the bottom line up front, uh, I would make two points. The first is, I think this paper talks about how Tunisian foreign fighters were eventually recruited to join ISIS in Syria. And it focuses on one particular neighborhood in a city in Tunisia in order to understand at a very micro level the process by which people in a specific place uh, ultimately end up finding themselves in Syria. So it starts from the beginning until the moment they arrive in Syria. And I think the paper has two sort of key takeaways. The first is, I think it helps our accounting of why the Islamic State was so popular in so many places. And we all know the foreign fighter figures, 40,000 people were recruited to join IS from 80 different countries, and IS controlled a a region between Syria and Iraq the size of uh, Great Britain. So it was massively popular, and there's a lot of attempts during the IS caliphate and after to figure out what attracted so many people to it. And this study, I think, firstly contributes to that uh, understanding by um, emphasizing that it's really important that we understand where these fighters originally come from. And the reasons why fighters go to IS... You know, no one can give you a single answer. It varies greatly depending on the place. Um, but I think in some cases there are regions of the world where foreign fighters come from and think of joining IS as an extension of their own war 
Um, I think Tunisia, that is definitely the case. Uh, and we can talk about why that is uh, later. Lebanon also, I think, is an example of that, too. Um, there are other places where fighters go to IS to fight a war they wish they could fight at home but can't. Um, so Saudi Arabia, a lot of instances in Europe, for example, China. Um, you know, And so it's funny, you could think about foreign fighting as either like a complementary good, like this is an extension of my own war, or a substitutional good, like I'm going to Syria to fight with IS because I can't fight the same war, I want to fight at home, at home. Um, and so the paper looks at one of these places in Tunisia, the country with arguably the highest per capita rate of foreign fighters. And it looks inside that country at a place where the rate of foreign fighting was um, one of the highest in the country. So Tunisia had an estimated rate of foreign fighting at about 25 people in 100,000. Um, in this neighborhood, I think conservatively, we're talking about 150 to 200 people in 100,000. Um, so it tries to help us understand what it is about these places that are so attract that 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 create this sort of very successful recruitment path, so to speak. But then the second reason I think that the paper is really important is that it focuses on hubs. Um, and so it talk, my paper talks a lot about these hubs. These are places where fighters are recruited at rates that are far disproportional to the expected rate based on the population of these places alone. These are places with high concentrations of foreign fighter recruits. And I think this is where we can start to get some traction on not just saying like these issues are local and depend on the context, because I think when we look at these very specific places, these neighborhoods, the, like the one in Tunis I studied, or regions, so for example, Darna or Benghazi in eastern Libya, northern Morocco, central Saudi Arabia, you know, when we start to look at these places, we can find some commonalities about the process by which people are recruited. Um, when I was on your show three years ago, we talked about the very beginning of this research, which was when I looked at the leaked foreign fighter files that IS had recorded, there were about 4,000 of them, and several um, large papers have been written about them. The thing that struck me the most was how foreign fighters, when you look at where they came from, they came from very specific places. And so what I'm doing in my research since then through now is trying to figure out what it is about those places that um, makes recruitment to foreign fighting so popular. Um, and so I think, you know, the reason why hubs are so important is that because it is that they're distinct. They change the logic of participation. People don't just join because they're necessarily ideologically or intellectually interested in the transnational jihadist project. They join in hubs for a variety of much more prosaic reasons. So people in, in this neighborhood in Tunis that this paper talks about joined uh, the extremist group that emerged and eventually sent people to Syria for protection, for participation in economic cooperatives and microcredit loans that they couldn't get from banks or friends. They joined because they were influenced to do so by close family and friends. And that recruitment in these areas had a virality to it. And it got to the point where recruiters in these neighborhoods were no longer recruiting. They were filtering. And they were there was such a high demand to join that recruiters ended up trying to filter out the ones that were most trustworthy, most reliable, and most committed. So how does a place like that get to that kind of a place um, that's the kind of question I think doesn't just apply for 
you know, the IS foreign fighter mobilization. I think it can apply to a lot of other kinds of mobilizations. And this neighborhood, and I'll just end here, this neighborhood looks like a neighborhood in a variety of other cities in the Middle East that I've visited that have become popular for not just, you know, IS or Al-Qaeda, but for other kinds of transnational militant groups. So this neighborhood, in terms of its social history, its socioeconomic and demographic profile, looks like neighborhoods like Sadr City in Baghdad, Babtibane in Tripoli, some of the neighborhoods in Mosul that flipped to IS very quickly, even in the 2000s, neighborhoods like City Movement in Casablanca. I mean, these neighborhoods have a lot of things in common, and the process by which people are recruited into violent groups uh, is very common in all these different places. So I think, and I hope, that this study tries to help people understand the sort of social phenomena at work driving the choices people think are available to them in these different places. That's really fascinating. And looking at the commonality between different locations is very important for the future as well. So to start off this talk, how did you get access to this neighborhood in Tunisia? And what sort of methods, excuse me, did you use to conduct your research? Um, So great question. I think maybe I'll back up by saying, so this paper is a part of my fieldwork, which is looking at how these hubs emerge, like what characteristics distinguish them, why they're important. So like the logic that's taking place in these hubs and then how eventually they form. Um, The first effort I did to try and understand this was sort of a broader quantitative analysis of the different hubs and where they emerged in the entire Arabic speaking world. Um, but these kinds of things, like a quantitative analysis or the structural conditions that predict where hubs emerge, are going to find things like high unemployment in the late 20s or you know youth bulges, things like that. Not to say that that's what I found per se, that research is ongoing. But the point is that these conditions might predict to a certain extent where hubs emerge, but they're not going to predict where all hubs emerge, and they're not going to be perfectly predictive of a hub emerging. In other words, if high unemployment is a predictor for where IS foreign fighter hubs emerge, then Cairo would be like the capital of the caliphate. So the next step in trying to figure out this question of hubs is actually going to places where there are hubs and trying to figure out how these structural conditions actually relate to um, the formation of these hubs at the beginning and their the logic of the way they operate going forward. And so Tunisia became a logical choice for me as a place to explore this question in greater depth because it's a freer and more open and democratic society. I mean, I will be the first to criticize a lot of what's happening in Tunisia right now. I'm very worried about Tunisia, but that's a question for maybe later on in the discussion. But I was shocked when I visited, and I've been a few times, at how open people are to talking about this issue as compared to virtually any other Middle Eastern country that I've done field work in. In most other countries in the Middle East, people talk about transnational jihadism as if it were like a Middle Eastern Cosa Nostra, like our little thing. We don't want to talk about it. It's our thing. You know, either in countries like Iraq, for example, people will say, you know, oh, these kinds of things came from abroad and, you know, they're not an Iraqi phenomenon and now we're fighting it, uh, you know, and the ones that were Iraqi, like we've dealt with this issue, etc. 
Um, same is true in Lebanon and, and in a lot of other countries that I visited. But in Tunisia, both at the political level and at the level of regular people who I've interviewed, people are really open to talking about it once you make the right introductions. And so that gets me to why did I pick this particular neighborhood in Tunisia? And that's because I had a few really close friends who I've been talking about this work for a while with and who were really very helpful at making introductions to people in this neighborhood who had close friends who went to Syria, who themselves tried to go to Syria and were stopped, who had family members who went to Syria, some of them who were killed, um, and also social workers in the community who had an, an, a lot of cases and a really, really great memory of the period when, in 2011, 12, 13, 14, when people started getting involved in Salafi jihadism um, and in this movement that eventually would take them to Syria. So in talking to some of those people, the only reason they spoke to me was that they transferred the trust of their friends, who happened to be my friends, onto me. So they spoke with me. Um, it was hard to figure out whether they were being truthful or not. Um, that's a separate, maybe if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that more. But just to close by saying, um, once they realized that my questions weren't about trying to figure out who did what where, but rather how they eventually went and completely anonymously, um, they opened up uh, in a way that I found really surprising and then ultimately introduced me to others I think who they felt like uh, wanted to share their story, were afraid of doing so to a news agency, for example, but wanted to help people better understand what happened in their neighborhood uh, in those early years of the 2010s. That's really fascinating. By starting with a small network, it, it grew larger through building that trust because of the trust you had from your contacts, which is sort of the age-old story I have of how great research tends to take place when it comes to interviewing people and actually in, involved in the human side of these stories that we all research from desks. Yeah. I mean, it was really challenging. Like, you know, you come home and people ask how, how was your research, you know? And a lot of the interviews were really challenging, like to set up, to do any convincing. And then a lot of people said no. Um, but then even the ones that said yes, who were like incredibly generous with sharing their experiences, a lot of them were really depressing. So, you know, it's hard for when someone asks you, how was your research? You're like bad and good, bad. <laughs> it's like hard to find the right words to describe uh, how it went. So I basically did one interview a day, maybe a few more, but usually one interview a day maximum. And did you do your interviews across a period of trips or was a lot of the research conducted in one bulk? Yeah, I mean, I did a few trips earlier in the year, um, maybe about two, three weeks worth of uh, several trips um, just to uh, make introductions, um, to show up, say hi, you know, just to introduce myself and to come back again so that people felt like I was actually like invested in trying to understand what was happening and not just like flying by night to get people's stories and then run them to press. Uh, but then the bulk of the actual research um, in terms of like the one, two, three hour long interviews were done over the summer this summer. Nice. Why don't we talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over the flu. Um, why don't we talk about some of the historical factors 
that helped this recruitment for the Islamic State take place in Tunisia because Tunisia has a rich history of influences and other groups that were involved with this process. So why don't we discuss that? Sure. Um, so you're, I think you're trying to, I think we're, what we're talking about is like, what, what is it about Tunisia that made it uh, a place where there were so many foreign fighters who went to fight in Syria? Um, fortunately, like, and I, and I, and I sort of generously cite others in the paper, you know, there's a lot of great work that's looking at the pre 2010, 2011 Tunisian revolution context in which jihadi Salafism, transnational jihadism is, uh, sort of active in Tunisia, but then, of course, after the revolution, too, to describe this sort of social and political context. Um, I mean, Aaron Zellin is the first person who I would mention, and he and I were neighbors in, in Cambridge, Mass., up until very recently, so we've had a lot of time to talk about this stuff. And uh, so his book's coming out in January next year, which will dive until um, quite deeply into the historical context of this in the 80s and 90s. Um, there's a lot of great work out there, and I'm definitely not going to cite all of it, but Anne Wolfe has a book about political Islam in Tunisia, and it's excellent. Rory McCarthy, Haim Malka, Margot Balboni, um, and Azade Mouaveni, who's the ICG uh, gender and crisis and conflict reporter, just wrote a book on women who joined ISIS and has profiled several Tunisians really elegantly in a way that captures the complexity of their choices. And I think that that's also really important because she goes back to describe the history, not just after 2011, but some of the discrimination that people faced in Tunisia who wanted to express themselves as Muslims, especially during the Ben Ali regime. And I think that's probably the one of the two key takeaways I would sort of posit from my own reading of their work, um, which is, you know, up until the revolution in Tunisia, Tunisia had sort of like a French-inspired laissez-faire system where it was sort of state-imposed secularism. So banning hijab wearing in school, lots of uh, co-optation of the religious community in such a way that it really, I think, uh, made the religious discourse in, in Tunisia really quite poor. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean like undereducated, underinformed, And, you know, most of the imams in the mosques, especially in the poorer regions of Tunisia, were informants. So, you know, in this neighborhood that I talk about in the paper, one of the guys I interviewed said, you know, look, you know, the imam in my neighborhood before the revolution was an informant and the principal of my high school. So on Friday, he was delivering sermons from the pulpit. And on Monday, he was ripping hijabs off of women's heads in school. So how seriously or how deficient religious discourse was in Tunisia meant that people sought out alternative sources of religious messages. And this kind of transpired in the 2000s at the same moment as the rise in satellite television and these satellite news channels with, from Egypt and Saudi Arabia, for example, where you had these really extreme preachers talking about uh, Islam and social life and social practice and that was really one of the only outlets that young people who were interested in having religious teachings could go to to learn about Islam. So by the late 2000s, you know, people started protesting against the government by wearing the hijab in school, by going to mosques. People were being arrested for going to mosques just because they were going for the dawn prayer. 
So religion and religious identity took on a sort of rebellious cloak as a sort of opposing the state. Um, but there was such a deep hostility to religion in Tunisia that it pushed aside all but some of the most extreme opinions about religion. And so that laid the groundwork, I think, for these groups to take over in Tunisia after the revolution, particularly people who were imprisoned in the 2000s. And then right after the revolution in Tunisia, there was a general amnesty, uh, which basically released thousands and thousands of people from prisons. Some of them were prisoners who had fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and who were released, but a bunch of other ones who basically were just imprisoned because the state thought they were too religious, which really just accelerated the religious radicalism that was going on in a lot of these prisons. So that's one. The other one is one that I spend a little bit more time talking about in the paper, um, which is the impact of Tunisia's revolution on the security services, but especially on the political leadership in the country. So in Nahada, the sort of long time uh, political Islam leaning uh, opposition party won by a landslide in the elections that happened in October of 2011. I think they won 42% of the popular vote and none of the rest of the like seven highest vote getters behind them could combined get to 42%. So they, they wanted in a landslide, and all of a sudden this party, which had spent decades in opposition in the course of a single year, had become basically the entire government trying to figure out what to do in Tunisia. And I had a lot of interviews with members of parliament and people in the executive committee within Ennahda about what happened from 2011 to 2013 when jihadi Salafi groups started to organize and mobilize and gain hundreds of thousands of supporters across the country. And I'll just say quickly, they mentioned three reasons why they felt like this phenomenon became so popular in Tunisia. The first was um, there was a belief within some of the members of Anahada, particularly led by Rashid Ghanoushi, who was the head of Anahada and the founder of Anahada, that democracy, that a democratic system would moderate the demands of jihadi Salafists over time. I mean, he basically was saying, like, if we can bring these people into democracy, you know, over time, they won't fight against the state, but seek to change the state from within. Um, he was strongly opposed by people in Anahada who had spent time with those guys in prison. Uh, and so people in Anahada talked about a really, really um, interesting debate within the party about what to do about particularly Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, which became sort of the flag bearer for jihadi Salafism in Tunisia. So that, that debate is in the paper. I encourage you to read it. The second thing was that I think people in Anahada feared becoming oppressors, having just recently been oppressed themselves. In other words, you know, they had been thrown in prison for, in some cases, decades, simply because they believed Islam should have a greater role in political life not because they had committed any crime. And they saw a lot of their own activism in some of the members of Ansar Sharia in the jihadi Salafist group in general. And they felt like, why would we, in just the span of a year, go from protesting against unlawful detentions to being those who conduct that unlawful detention ourselves? And that appeared in 
every interview I did with members of Anahada, there was a really deep personal struggle over what to do about this issue. The third and final point, and I think the other reason why Anahada really was very late to crack down on Ansel Sharia was they feared more than a jihadist uprising in Tunisia, a counter-revolution by supporters of the Ben Ali dictatorship, which they had just opposed. And that counter-revolutionary force was real and strong. It comprised not just secular political elites, but the business community as well, and the security uh, apparatus of the state, especially in the intelligence gathering apparatus of the state. And so that fear not only made that issue more of a priority for them than, you know, the Ansal Sharia stuff, and frankly, the leaders in the government at the time were very frank with me about how incompetent they were as new governors. I mean, imagine taking over, you know, being the prime minister of a state, having just been basically writing magazine articles a year before in exile. You know, so they were acknowledging of their incompetence. So basically they had one critical issue, which was dealing with the potential of a counter-revolution. Part of that meant extending political concessions to their opponents. And the most sort of high-profile example of this in the early years was Ennahada withdrew their insistence of including Sharia law in the Tunisian constitution, which for members of Ansar Sharia and the jihadi Salafi community in general was sort of tantamount to uh, betrayal. And, but the second thing, and the thing that I don't think people talk a lot enough about, is that inside the security services and in the bureaucracy in general, there were a lot of much, much smaller and harder to see concessions made by Ennahada leaders who were, let's say, the Minister of the Interior with an entire security apparatus, a uh, deep state, if you will, which was not only had spent time, you know, interrogating these same people and detaining them, but sort of very philosophically, politically opposed to them being their bosses. So Ali Laharayev, who was the Minister of Interior in the first few years, was telling me how he spent a lot of time just trying to reform the security structure. Um, so I think when people talk about, and I'll just conclude here by saying, I think when talk, people talk about how, you know, the Arab Spring in Tunisia uh, destroyed the security services and therefore, you know, thousands and thousands of Tunisians went to fight abroad. And so we shouldn't allow these security services to be dismantled or we shouldn't allow these states to undergo political transitions. I think that opinion is really myopic. And it undervalues the difficulty of imposing a system of human rights, uh, protection for democratic reform in a country. And that over the long term, I think that will ensure Tunisia's stability over, over time rather than sort of undermine its ability to deal with these issues uh, in the long term. Thinking of all of this, because it's very complex if you really look at the whole situation, how does interpersonal relations, whether it's through individuals that were thrown into this government position that knew people beforehand and so forth, or even the localized interpersonal relationships of the neighborhood that you did a lot of your research in, how did that affect the situation? I mean, I think... I'm really glad that you brought that point up because I think at the end of the day, interpersonal relationships, I mean, if you could do interpersonal relationships were critical in the recruitment process. Uh, if you could do like a, you know, 
like a, if you had perfect information about the testimonies of how people eventually join a transnational jihadist group like ISIS, and you ran a regression of all the material you got from those testimonies, um, you know, personal histories like levels of education, employment histories, uh, you know, personal internet uh, use, etc. I think the thing that would come up as being the most predictive of why someone joins a group like this is that they knew someone who had joined previously, that a close friend or family member had joined, and they learned about that group and also the possibilities of joining that group from that personal connection. Um, And that's why I think studying hubs is so important because if we assume that interpersonal relationships play an important role in this recruitment process, and I think most people would agree that they do places where there are higher numbers or higher concentrations of people who are joining, let's say IS give each person in that community a greater chance of joining IS as well, just because of those numbers. And I think the process of joining had sort of viral qualities to it. And so for what I mean by that is like, for example, you know, when I interview family members or friends of people who went to Syria and they talk about how that friend or brother or sister or cousin got recruited, the thing I heard so often was that, they, like people who recruited that person, made a case study of that person before they ever approached them. And so the way and the reason they could do that in a community like this hub that I studied in Tunisia is because everyone knew everyone already. And so if you were a recruiter trying to find out some information about someone, you could go to that person's you know, neighbor, you could go to that person's school teacher, you could go to that person's uncle or cousin or, you know, the shopkeeper down the street or the imam in the mosque that that person attended and get information about that person. So you basically, as a recruiter, could build a profile of someone before you ever approach them. So, you know, one of the people who I interviewed described how his brother had just experienced a traumatic event. He had witnessed the death of a friend. And then a few weeks later, was swimming on the coast with a friend and his friend drowned. Um, And so he was in a really sort of psychologically difficult state and grew up in a neighborhood where like, you know, access to social psychologists and psychosocial support networks is very limited. You know, he was struggling with these questions about mortality, about sharing his own trauma. And, you know, recruiters knew that about him because they could, through social networks, learn that information about him. So not only did they know that person's state of mind, but they also knew the right moment to reach out to that person. And so the person's family member who was telling me the story said, basically they, you know, approached him and said, look, we heard about what happened to your friend. That's awful. Do you want to talk about it? And, you know, they would talk about it for a while. And then they would say, you know, life is short and who knows what plans God has for us. But if you'd like to, pray for the salvation of your friend. And if you haven't been praying maybe for yourself, why don't you come with us to the mosque um, and join us for prayer? And once that person ends up going to the mosque and in this neighborhood, basically all the mosques were captured by what would eventually become Ansar Sharia. And the story of how they captured those mosques is in the paper. So I, I highly encourage uh, 
you to listen or to read it. But because they had control of all these mosques, what they ended up doing in the recruitment process was they just convinced people to agree to join them for prayer. And once the person arrived at the mosque, they could give them their recruitment pitch on home turf, so to speak, and surrounded with many like-minded individuals. And through this exposure to what was effectively like a spiritual collective where the bonds between the brothers who were involved in this movement were so visibly strong. Um, and this gets to stuff that, you know, J.M. Berger talks about, about sort of the bonds within an in-group uh, and the way they describe the out-group in, I think, really excellent terms, is they look at this collective and they think, this is something that I want to take part in. Over time, that collective transformed into something else. But that is basically the first step that a lot of people took that eventually took them to Syria. The thing I found very, very interesting in the paper, too, when looking at recruitment and recruiters, is that you said it was only about 20 to 30 people that were recruiters in this case. Um, yeah, I mean, I would maybe say that... Um, 20 to 30 people really got the movement started and, and became sort of the main figureheads. I mean, Aaron Zellin talks about how there were about 20 guys in prison in Tunis as part of a small collective of jihadi Salafis who eventually came up with the idea of Ansar al-Sharia. But when you talk to people in the neighborhood, they only mention a few names as the most prominent people. There were a network of recruiters who were lower than them, um, but those people's jobs were not to convince someone to go to Syria or even to be involved in their uh, indoctrination. Their job was effectively to bring new people into the movement, like invite them to the mosque, invite them to a soccer game, you know, do dawah activities, so proselytization activities or preaching activities in the neighborhood. And the reason why those lower-level recruiters were doing that in large part was because effectively what had been set up in this neighborhood was a system where people competed for favors in the group, like you and I would compete for a job promotion. Um, because the group was quite well-resourced, you could gain, for example some money for an investment in a small business that you and a few friends could run, like a, like a vegetable and fruit stand outside the mosque, for example. Because Ansar al-Sharia and the network of supporters of Ansar al-Sharia in this neighborhood controlled the neighborhood, they would dominate all the most profitable corners and squares to sell goods and to run taxi services and smuggle goods in and out of the neighborhood and in and out of Tunis. So you could make quite a bit of money but you could also gain greater acclaim and prestige inside the group. So there were a lot of other benefits, not just monetary ones. If you showed that you were really committed to the cause, and one of the ways you could show you were committed to the cause was to refer new members. And, you know, this is not just true for this kind of thing. I mean, businesses always profit when their employees refer new employees to join because usually these employees fit in better, work harder, stay longer. You know, so... They set up the same system there. And so recruiters, you know, I say 20 to 30 people because, you know, a lot of the leaders of Ansel Sharia, when you talk to people on the ground, they would say, oh, I met 
you know, Kamal Zarouk, or I went to uh, a sermon from Abu Iyad, and so Abu Iyad was the leader of Ansar Sharia. Kamal Zarouk was a very popular sort of lieutenant of Ansar Sharia in the Tunis suburbs area. You know, and those people were really meaningful for them along their pathway for indoctrination. Khatib al-Idrisi, who is a sheikh who has been classically trained in like Wahhabism and jihadi Salafism, designed the curriculum that a lot of people were indoctrinated by. So when I mean, when I say 20 to 30 people, I mean like those people. Underneath them and sort of uh, uh, perpetuating this system or increasing its number and size were a lot of sort of recruiter foot soldiers who were really just trying to advance their own status in the group um, and competing with one another to do that. And so all that information, all the recruitment pitches, all the discussions informally in the neighborhood that got people involved sort of had a life of their own once you set the system up. You also mentioned prisons a little bit ago, and I was wondering if we could tease that out a bit because that was another big influence into recruitment. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's huge. Um, like I was talking to an NGO in Tunisia, which works in the prisons now, and they were talking about how basically there's one guard for every 60 prisoners. I mean, it's an unmanageable, yeah. uh, truly unmanageable. Um, and it was unmanageable before the revolution too, um, where you had thousands of people who were being arrested simply because they went to the morning prayer or because they had a family or fa- relative who was involved in this stuff. Um, so, and these people in the prisons, because there is just so little supervision over them, got to meet one another um, and um, over time became introduced to these ideas because the Quran was the only book you could get in prison for a long time. Um, but then after the revolution, you know, as people were getting arrested, um, you know, as someone explained it to me who was in prison for a while in Mornagia, which is one of the big prisons in, in the in the Tunis area, you know, the recruitment was really explicit. You know, people would, he explained how someone struck up a conversation with him uh, and 10 minutes later was like, you know, you want to go to Syria? <laughs> it was, it was virulent. Um, it was unsupervised. Um, it's a problem not only in Kampuka in Iraq, it's a problem in Tunisia, too. It's a problem in Al-Hol now in Syria, northeast Syria, where there are like 70,000 people and about 400 guards. Um, there's no question it's a massive, massive problem. Um, the question is what to do about it. Um, you know, some people would say that we should put the, we should find the most radical or the most influential who are not necessarily the most radical individuals in this network uh, in prisons and just put them in solitary confinement. The problem with that is that like guys like Abu Iyad, the leader of Ansar al-Sharia, who was in prison in the mid-2000s, was himself in isolation. Um, and yet through passing messages, was able to, uh, you know, be involved in the planning of Ansar al-Sharia or what would become Ansar al-Sharia in prison in the 2000s. So, there's no real good answer to this. Um, at, frankly, I don't, I'm not a psychologist. Um, but I think 
these prisons are just so massively under-resourced that I would encourage uh, a lot more resources be brought to bear on um, not only, like, more guards in prisons, but also better metrics to evaluate the extent to which people are not just adopting radical beliefs, that's very complicated, but also connecting and interacting with people who are of the same uh, intellectual or ideological persuasion. Considering this case study, so Tunisia, and all of these individuals that were recruited and ended up traveling to Syria, what kind of policy recommendations can we take away and also broader lessons learned that apply to other conflicts in the future? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question, Chelsea. I mean, I think, you know, uh, in the academic world, we spend so little time uh, thinking about the policy elements, but I think one would be really negligent, one warrant also while doing this, thinking about them. So in the paper, I put, you know, two really critical um, policy takeaways um, in basically in the executive summary. Um, and I'll just sort of explain them a little bit here. The first is, you know, we have both spent a lot of time talking about how important interpersonal networks are. They definitely facilitated the recruitment of foreign fighters in Tunisia at a large scale, especially inside this hub that the paper talks about or in a lot of hubs in many other contexts. But what I would say to that is from a policy standpoint, fortunately, like, you know, as they say, that uh, within the disease lies the cure. Um just as much as interpersonal relationships facilitate recruitment for, let's say in this case, foreign fighters to IS, these interpersonal networks can also help um, prevent them from being recruited. Um, one of the things that I came away with from my research also this summer and in other contexts is that someone almost always knows that a person is being recruited and is sort of developing these violent uh, extremist beliefs. And the problem often for that person is that they have nowhere to go to report their concerns. In a lot of cases, um, people in the neighborhoods where recruitment is happening most virulently are themselves under suspicion by police because usually they come from politically, socially, economically isolated neighborhoods where there is a large stigma uh, associated with being from these neighborhoods related to criminality, violence, etc. So if you were someone from this neighborhood who was worried about a cousin or a brother and you tried to report your concerns to the police, um, they, would, they would arrest you and then they would arrest that person. You know, so, you know, most family members or friends don't want to get this someone arrested just because they sort of disagree with the beliefs they're uh, adopting. Um, a lot of the recruitment happens in sort of a pre-criminal phase, and I think that's where prevention can be most successful. So the question is, what can people do or what policies can we design to help people help those that are getting recruited? Um and I think the one example that I find most persuasive of my research so far is that there is a hotline in Germany that's staffed by psychologists and social workers that people can call to anonymously report concerns and, and start to get some 
tips and best practices for what to do, um, even to potentially confidentially connect the person they're concerned about to that network of social workers and uh, psychosocial support. Um, that is great in cases where you've got open systems like Germany or at least like not active conflicts. Um, in active conflicts, a lot of this stuff doesn't apply because people will join uh, an insurgent group for a variety of reasons, some of which are just to be safe. So I would say that this kind of finding that you can help people, help those that they're concerned about, fit for places like Tunisia, where there are some institutions, there's not an active ongoing conflict. Um, separately, you would need to adapt these issues for, for places where there's conflict. So that's first, though, I think, trying to find ways to help these people get help confidentially for people that they're concerned about. The second is, I think, um, what I learned from the Tunisian case is that there are three lines of effort that need to complement each other to deal with this. State-led programs that provide what I describe in the paper as new opportunity structures in neighborhoods where recruitment was most prevalent, so in places like this hub. Uh, second is um, supporting grassroots organizations to address the recruitment process at the individual level. And the reason the individual level is important is, one, because recruiters work at the individual level. They often make individual level pitches, either online or in person. Um, and so if you're not working at that level, if you're sending a message about, you know, with a, with a sheikh from Al-Azhar University saying, like, you know, Jihad is haram uh, if you're using it to fight other Muslims, if you're using it for a variety of other reasons. Um, that's not going to matter for someone in a, in a suburb of Tunis. These people don't watch that stuff. They don't care about that stuff. They're working in the space in front of them. So you have to be in that space too. Um, but secondly, the reason I think it's important to work at the individual level when you're working on grassroots activism is because that's really the only way you can measure the impact of your work um, is by sort of doing psych, you know, sort of measuring psychosocial uh, change or uh, psych psychological change over time for the individual. You know, there are a lot of projects that work on like resilience uh, and, you know, these kinds of community resilience programs with the theory being that if we support the community to um, work together better, they will reject um, you know, influenced by, you know, terrorist groups or insurgent group recruitment. And, I mean, that may be true, but I think it's really hard to measure that. Um, but also, if a community is more resilient or at least more cohesive, that cohesiveness might actually facilitate recruitment rather than necessarily buffer it. But so the second thing I think is focusing on grassroots level activism by working at the individual level, by identifying the individuals who are most vulnerable to being targeted and getting help for them. And the third one is to work within the law enforcement and intelligence on identifying the individuals who are the most influential. So these are the 20 to 30 people who are sort of building this movement, who are leading this movement, who are training and indoctrinating the members of this movement. And even though the number is small, these are people with access to money, 
probably access to, you know, lots of support inside government agencies um, who have lots of resources and who are actually often very well aware of the legal line that, and they don't cross it. So a great example of this outside of Tunisia is a guy like Anjem Chowdhury, who was the head of al Mahajarun in the UK. Um, basically, Jihadi Salafis social organization, which ended up sending dozens of fighters to go to fight in Syria. You know, this was a guy who was the head of the movement who was very careful not to cross the line to being, uh, to saying anything illegal, like incitement to violence. Um, these people are very actually very hard to build a case against, but I think these are the most critical people, and I think this is where law enforcement ought to focus. So just to summarize, you know, you need to focus on the individuals who are most vulnerable to being recruited, one, at the grassroots level, two, find and develop state programs that create new structures of opportunity for people like this. And what that means is, for example, um, this hub is a place where it's almost impossible to get out of. It, it's suffocating. I mean, people describe it as suffocating. The roads are too narrow. It's too densely populated. And so if you wanted to get to work downtown, it would take you an hour and a half just to get there. And downtown is five to seven kilometers away because you have to walk out of your neighborhood. You have to hail a taxi, which often won't stop for you. And that taxi might take you somewhere close to downtown, but it, because you can't afford an actual taxi, you take a shared taxi and then you walk somewhere else and police stop you because they know you're from that neighborhood and harass you because they think you're a criminal just because you're from that neighborhood. You know, so the process of living every day is utterly exhausting and sometimes humiliating. So I think state-led programs to be more aware that there are these kinds of massive uh, informal settlements and provide people from the settlements access to opportunities, even simply just public transit, um, is, a critical, is critical because if you find someone who wants to get a job but can't make it there because he or she has to take care of his kids at home, you know, you're missing out on an opportunity. So it's not just finding the vulnerable people who are potentially being recruited, but also offering them alternative opportunities and networks to pursue often, I think in some cases, really righteous causes. You know, they want to be involved in things that matter to them, that they care about deeply. And in these communities where there are hubs, that translates into being a part of a religious community that will ultimately manipulate the way they think about the world and send them to Syria. And the third and final thing is trying to identify the critical people who are actually actively involved in changing someone's mindset. Not the foot soldiers who are bringing the person to the mosque, but the person at the mosque who is then, you know, shaping your worldview into thinking in a way that J.M. Berger talks a lot about, which is, you know, my survival is predicated on our being, uh, you know, on top as compared to you in, in the outgroup. Um, those are people that I think we need to be finding ways to prosecute legally. The more you do this stuff illegally, the more likely the group will remain because a sense of injustice is pervasive in this community. And I'll just close by saying, you know, jihadi Salafism spends a lot of time talking about who is and isn't a just ruler. And this language was like second nature to people in this hub. You know, someone was saying, you know, I knew about tyrants before it was the curriculum. Like I knew that tyrants were a problem and injustice was a problem before any, you know, big bearded, you know, dude came up to me and told me that that was a problem, you know? And I think that's like, in terms of thinking about the pitfalls of enhancing law, law enforcement uh, capacity, 
that is probably the biggest one. Really, really interesting. To conclude the talk, we like to give our guests a moment to touch upon something that we might not have been able to in the full talk or just have a final thought. So I'd like to give you that opportunity, Nate. Oh, thanks, Chelsea. Yeah. Um, let's see. Hmm. So I would just say um, that I think we right now are sort of uh, at a critical moment when we think about what is the future of transnational jihadism. Um, you know, the sort of called caliphate of IS is gone. IS is, as a lot of people have written about, probably transitioning to something of an insurgency. I think what we do now to deal with this issue is going to have massive repercussions for the extent to which this issue remains a threat in the future. And I'm normally, uh, for those who know me, I am an optimist, always by nature, because I feel like if you're a pessimist, you suffer twice. You suffer because your outlook is pessimistic, and then you suffer because it's likely coming true. Uh, <laughs> but in this case, I am very pessimistic about our ability to deal with the social and political dimensions of this counterterrorism issue. And, um, you know, you and I were talking before this call about the situation in Al-Hol in Syria, this camp where a lot of the last remaining fighters and families who were in Baghouz, the last redoubt of IS in Syria, fled to this camp. And the camp grew from 10,000 in November to 70,000 or 73,000 in April. You know, this camp is a hub. It's a hub. And the logic of why people believe that ISIS will reemerge is really similar to the way the hub operated in that it's safer for you in Al whole to believe in the message of IS and to support the ideology of jihadi Salafism than for you to renounce it. And the longer that continues, the more pessimistic I am in Al whole and elsewhere, the more pessimistic I am that we will in any conceivable way resolve the issue of transnational jihadism um, in the future. I mean, there are 25,000 kids under five in that camp, um, 25,000. And I just think that as an international community, we are so bereft of useful solutions for how to deal with this that I am just really pessimistic. And I'll say, because we're not, we're running out of time. I'll just say that my, the first step is obviously to like diagnose the scope of this issue, which I don't think countries are doing up until very recently. But secondly, it's to repatriate your citizens. I mean, the reason we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of transnational jihadism from Afghanistan till now is because countries are consistently unwilling to repatriate, reintegrate, and prosecute their citizens who have fought for these groups overseas. And so what happens is you have this stateless group of people who migrate from conflict to conflict. And now this stateless group includes tens of thousands of women and children who will be the ones who cohere this movement until it reemerges. And I just don't think, I don't see enough. I mean, the United States, I give them a lot of credit even this administration, which is super rare for me, I give them a lot of credit for pushing countries to readmit their citizens. 
I mean, America is in a better situation. There are only about 150 to 200 Americans, so it's not that hard for us to repatriate them relative to the, you know, France or the UK. Um, but that's the first step in my mind, and I just don't see us doing that. So that's the thing that I worry about the most now. Yeah. No, I've talked to different individuals in, in different government agencies, and, and they don't know what to do. They're they're some of them say, oh, should we let people back? But if we do, it's it's so confusing to them. And, you know, there isn't an easy solution to this, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. But this place, like, I think this is where, like, our this sort of study of how hubs of recruitment form has some analytical value for us to diagnose these problems elsewhere. Because, you know, the logic of the way the hub works and why people join is fundamentally different from the way it works in many other places where it's more part of the fringe in hubs. It's the mainstream. Actually in some communities, it's riskier for you not to be involved. I mean, some of the guys I interviewed in this hub were like, you know, when I asked them how many people they knew who went to Syria separately, several people, you know, I was like 10 people. No, 20 people. No, these guys knew 30 people who went to Syria. These are friends of theirs and, and relatives. You know, and so for them to not have gone is more irregular than for them to have gone. Um, and I think the same is going to be true in these networks of families in Al-Hol and elsewhere. And unless we repatriate the citizens, i.e. break up these networks that reinforce these systems of belief, there is just no way for us to hope that this problem will just disappear in the future. Well, I think that's perfect advice to end the show on. And I encourage our listeners to read the full paper that we will post with this talk. It's very informative, very interesting. And thank you so much, Nate, for coming on and discussing this with us. And I look forward to your continued research. Thanks, Chelsea. It's such a pleasure to be back on the Loopcast. And I just commend you for all the great work you, got, you and Sina are doing to keep it going. Oh, thank you.